You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Greetings and welcome to Domecast. I'm Don Vaughn here with Colin Campbell and Brian Murphy. And our first segment of this episode is looking at the national attention on North Carolina. Uh, part of that was the governor's race, which incumbent Democrat Governor Cooper won with enough of a percent margin for there not to be as much uh, stress uh, that they we're seeing nationally and with some of the other races, which takes us to the U.S. Senate race, which Brian has been covering. If you want to talk about that and where we are and what's what's to come. Sure. Republican incumbent Senator uh, Tom Tillis has uh, about a 96, 97,000 vote lead over Democratic challenger Cal Cunningham uh, in a race that Cal Cunningham was favored to win. I mean, most of the polling coming into Election Day uh, had Cunningham up by about two or three points. Some polls had him up by as much as six. Um, Obviously, the race was shaken up a little bit by the October surprise or October uh, announcement that uh, of a sex scandal. Uh, involving Cunningham and and at least one woman that's not his wife. Um, that story got a lot of attention, and, and Cal Cunningham stopped talking to the media basically after that came out. Uh, Tillis went on a, a final blitz, not only with lots of advertising hitting Cunningham over the scandal, um, but um, what you know was doing all kinds of media was at rallies with Mike Pence and and Donald Trump and Nikki Haley and. Uh, Ted Cruz really, really tried to play up the difference between him being out there and Cunningham not being out there. And uh, who knows? I, I think there are a million factors that probably went into what happened in the U.S. Senate race. Again, the race has not been called, but given the number of ballots that are remaining and the lead, uh, I think most people think it's very likely that Senator Tillis will, will hold on to that seat and win a second term. Um, I think I think this, this really comes down to that scandal. And, and the question is, did it matter? How much did it matter? Um, I've heard that it mattered some, uh, but that there were other factors in this race, including whether or not the polling was accurate to begin with. I mean, we phrased it as Cunningham has blown this lead um, with the scandal, but the question I think remains, was he ever really leading? Um, I've heard some people talk about uh, you know, black voter turnout and, and the models that these polls were um, working off of, the election turnout that they were working off of had a little bit higher percentage of, of black voter turnout than actually happened to be the case. I've heard other theories that, you know, Republicans continue to do grassroots work, knocking on doors, canvassing at a time when Democrats really pulled back because of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so there, there are a lot of theories out there as to, as to what happened in this race. Um, all we really know is that it was, it was super close and it appears that uh, Tom Tillis is going to win. Let's talk about retail politics and that on the ground game and how that's one thing that Dan Forrest did that that wasn't successful. But but Tillis already being the incumbent was the ground game plus the being the incumbent and a name that people knew and already knew in state government here. Do you think that's a factor? You know, I think I think everything played a factor. Obviously, in Wake County and Mecklenburg County, uh, Cunningham ran behind Joe Biden. Um, considerably, about 52,000 votes behind in those two counties alone. Um, if you look at the areas where Biden overperformed Cunningham, it's all of the large populous uh, Democratic strongholds in the state. Um, and so the question that I have, and I would love to get answered, are those were those uh, Republican voters who decided to vote for Joe Biden, deciding they, they could not support Donald Trump, and then went back to Senator Tillis uh, down ballot? Or were those Democratic voters who were going to support Joe Biden all along, but decided they, they could not cast their ballot for, for Cal Cunningham uh, in the end. And that's a question that I'm, I'm just not sure we'll ever get an answer to. But, it, you know, I know Wake County and um, 
flipped a couple of seats in, in the state legislature. Um, Republicans worked really, really hard in, in those counties to kind of lower the margins to, to win back some seats. So it's possible that that grassroots work also helped someone like Senator Tillis in those counties. Yeah, I'm, I'm personally kind of skeptical that the scandal did that much of a difference. Like I did see in uh, the polling averages, Cunningham had a bigger lead going into October than he did at the end. Um, at the end, we were still, I mean, the polls, I think, largely showed Cunningham up a point or two, but it's all within the margin of error. And there were a couple of polls, I think, by some sort of Republican-leaning pollsters that had Tillis up a point or two, which may be exactly where we we end the race. But I mean, the, the margin of victory for Tillis, if it holds to what it is roughly now, when all the votes are counted, is very, very similar to Trump and the presidential. So I think it's, you know, there's just not very many voters who want Trump in the White House and a Democrat in the Senate or want Biden in the White House and a Republican in the Senate. Well, what about the libertarian votes? Do you think there were people that were, you know, that that didn't want to vote for Cunningham and didn't want to vote for Tillis? And that's why the libertarian got, you know, those few thousand votes that can make a difference. Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly you would think that that libertarian and Constitution Party, the two candidates that were on the ballot in the Senate race would pull more votes from from Republican leaning voters than they would from Democratic leaning voters. Um but I, I think, you know, in a race this close, we can point to, to you know, a, a thousand different things that may have cost uh, Tillis votes here. I mean, Cunningham votes here or there or, or quite frankly, Tillis votes here or there. Um, I do think, you know, the never Trumper, you know, Trump's margin in, in Wake and Mech went down. Uh, not his margin, but his, his vote share went down. Um, and the gap between uh, Deborah Ross, who ran in 2016, and Hillary Clinton was two or three points in those two counties for, for Cunningham uh, to Biden, it was four points. So I think you're, you're seeing a little bit of of everything, I think, getting into the mix there. Cunningham ran behind uh, Biden by about 112,000 votes statewide. Tillis obviously ran behind Trump by a couple by, by votes as well. Um, but his margin over Tillis's margin over Cunningham is larger than Trump's margin over Biden. So uh, I, the Tillis campaign believes that the scandal gave them an opening. They believe that the race had been largely stagnant, that none of the attacks that Tillis had made on Cunningham being a tax and spend liberal, um, that, that he did, he was, you know, hesitant to get the vaccine, the, the, the attacks over a Butler's pantry, the attacks over, um, all the attacks that they lobbed, the, the attacks over the PPP, all the attacks that they lobbed at Cunningham did not seem to move Cunningham's numbers at all until the scandal. Um, Paul Shoemaker, a, a Republican veteran, Republican strategist said, that moved uh, numbers by as much as 10 points within about four days. He said that people who didn't know anything about the scandal were voting for Cunningham heavily, that people who knew a little bit about the scandal were voting for Cunningham just a little bit, and that people who knew a lot about the scandal were breaking heavily for Tillis. And that's why you saw that media that just made the scandal their entire focus of the last few weeks. The last few weeks, it was hard to know what uh, Tom Tillis was running on, but everything was what he was running against, and what he was running against was was Cunningham and really making his character, his honor, his trustworthiness, all, all issues in the race. Again, uh, maybe that created a little bit of an opening to, to move the race one or two points, and, and that was all Tillis needed. And as you guys will, will talk about later, it was a very good night for Republicans throughout much of the state. I also wonder too much uh, how much the Cunningham campaign's handling of the scandal well, that's hurt because them more. Trump is clearly more egregiously like you know cheated on on his multiple wives over time so if that was your single issue 
but if it's it's the it's the handling of it and it's it, and it's also you know is there a factor where it's what you are beyond that is enough you know so are people like well i don't like this aspect of him and his character and they might feel the same way about trump but they like trump's what he's going to do for them policy wise and maybe they didn't think cunningham was going to do anything for them you trying to figure out what motivates voters is, is you know, a, a job that really should pay a lot more. Um, but I, I will say this, you know, Trump, Trump never ran on a character. Trump, Trump never ran on his character. He ran on being a businessman, a reality TV star, a celebrity in some ways. Cunningham's entire campaign was about his personal service, personal service to the country as, a, as an Iraq and Afghanistan war veteran, you know, personal service as a lieutenant colonel in the army. Um, he ran a very, you know, personal service as, as someone who was in Boy Scouts and served as class president. And he was this small town guy from North Carolina who made character, service, honor, and cleaning up cr- corruption sort of a big part of his campaign. And now suddenly you have something that cuts against that dramatically. Whereas in, in Trump's case, you know, the fact that he he may have, you know, had indiscretions sort of plays into his 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 campaign. Um, whereas in this, it really cut against everything that Cunningham had worked to, to put out there as, you know, his, um, his persona, his public persona was that his family man, you know, duty, honor, country, trustworthiness. And, and this really hurt that. Right. I mean, anyone alive in the eighties, nineties remembers Marla Maples and it's not like uh, Trump ever presented himself as, as anything, but everything that we've seen, you know, and, and more so. So I, you know, maybe the lesson is don't present your, present yourself as a certain kind of candidate if you don't actually have the receipts for it, right? Yeah, yeah, and and you know, they tried to make it a single issue case against Tillis, healthcare, 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 um, and and I think that you know that worked in 2018. I'm I'm not sure. Obviously, turnout was much much higher in 2020. Um, I, I'm not. I, I think Trump obviously motivated Republicans to get out to the ballots, and I think Trump motivated Democrats to get out and cast their votes too. And and in the end, uh, Cunningham's going to fall a little short. And I think um, whether it was the scandal or not, that's how this that's how this election will be remembered. Cunningham blew a lead, whether he had one or not. Cunningham blew a lead because of a sex scandal in the last month. I think that's going to be the obituary of this race um, forever. So, yeah, and I think he, he got worse by avoiding the media coverage. Uh, I mean, the, the seemed to drag the story out. And, and to me, the most memorable moment of this campaign was Cunningham getting cornered by Michael Hyland of WNC <laughs> News in the Starbucks parking lot. And he's he's trying to answer the questions, but his mask is falling off his face. And it just was was not a good moment for him at all. Yeah. And you wonder, I mean, I, I you know, the, because uh, Cunningham has not spoken, you wonder, you know, how much turmoil there was, you know, not only in the campaign, but also in his personal life, if that impacts the way you can really forcefully campaign over the final month of the of the campaign. And and we do we are seeing in, in exit polls that, that a lot of late breakers decided to go with Trump. And so you wonder if late deciders in this race decided to stay with Tillis. We know who he is, uh, may not love him, but but at least we know what we're getting. We know he's probably not gonna be in the in the news for a giant scandal like this. Yep, that's true. That's what, why North Carolina politics is so great, is that uh, we get so many surprises and fun stuff. Like I, I will add one thing. Uh, obviously, you cover the governor, so you'll, you'll hit on this. But, you know, uh, the, North Carolina has a history of splitting its vote between presidential Republican presidents and Democratic governors. North Carolina does not have a history of splitting its vote when it comes between president and senator. Uh, the same party has won both of those races every time they've been um, on the ballot at the same time. 
since 1968. That was the last time they split between uh, one candidate for president and, and another party candidate for Senate. So uh, once you saw Trump win or Trump hold a lead, it became, you know, uh, history's guide would be that that Tillis would be able to, to hold on as well. Well, I'm sure people are already thinking about Burr seat. I mean, that I think that'll be a fun campaign, you know. Yeah, Senator Richard Burr uh, says he's not going to run again in 2022 and has given no indication that he is going to run. If you look at things like fundraising, you know, all of his comments have indicated he's not going to run. People are already lining up. I can promise you that. Uh, I would look for Mark Walker, the former congressman now out of uh, Greensboro, to be one of the first people to jump in that race. Uh, certainly you know, uh, a lot of other names have been floated. I, I feel confident that Walker will get in. I, I don't feel as confident naming other people that will get in. But yeah. House Speaker Tim Morris seems to have dropped a lot of hints in that, that <laughs> direction that he might not be Speaker after 2022. Um, I would be surprised if Democrats went to recruit Jeff Jackson. I, I don't think they're going to go back and ask Cunningham to run again. But you know, and Erica Smith, who, who lost in the Democratic primary to, to Cal Cunningham, has already indicated she plans on running. Um, you've heard all kinds of names. Mark Meadows, um, uh, you know, Phil Berger, I mean, you, uh, Dan Forrest, some people have suggested that he, he could try to run for Senate, at Pat McCrory, the former governor. So I, I think uh, maybe as soon as uh, 2020 gets called, we'll start to turn our attention to 2022. Hey, at least one candidate's coming back. Shannon Bray, the libertarian, told me he's definitely running again in 2022 and thinks he can build on his margins. So well, there's one guarantee we'll right there. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, I think uh, it, if uh, Joe Biden is elected president, um, that makes it a more inviting target for Republicans. Um, it, it, you know, ten, midterm elections tend to be bad for the party that's in uh, power in the White House. And so if Donald Trump had won re-election, I think you would have seen a more robust uh, slate of Democrats aiming for that 2022 seat. If Joe Biden wins, I think you'll see a more robust uh, slate of Republicans running for that seat. All right. Never a dull moment for us. So that wraps up for our segment on U.S. Senate. Um, Brian, thanks for uh, thanks for your analysis. And uh, I'm sure as soon as you guys are listening to this, the news will have already changed. So yeah, thanks <laughs> yeah. for having me. I need to get some sleep. You guys, too. Yeah, I get some sleep. All right. Thanks, Brian. Welcome back to our second segment. Uh, I'm Don Vaughn here with Lucille Sherman, Will Doran, and Colin Campbell. In our first segment, we had talked to Brian Murphy about uh, the U.S. Senate race. And now we're looking at our state legislature. And was it really a November surprise that Republicans maintain control? Maybe to some Democrats who spent a lot of money and thought that uh, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, Lucille, you wrote a, uh, a look back at, at the decade of, of GOP control of the General Assembly. Do you think that helped them in this? Yeah, that's a good, a good question. There are so many factors, I think, that played into this. I will say my sense from looking back at the last 10 years of Republican majority in the legislature, it seems like just in reading a lot of the clips from the NNO, Really, every two years, Democrats were like, this is our year to take it back in 2012 and 2014 and 2016. And it really only worked for them in 2018, as we know. And yeah, I think I think what's interesting is Democrats did raise a ton of money, but I don't know that the messaging really stuck with voters and the money that they raised didn't equal, you know, the votes they ended up getting. And so I'm not sure... Um, Republicans would love to say that it's the policies they implemented, but I also think it's, you know, really related to the campaigns they ran and how they did it. 
Yeah. What do you guys think about retail politics? And that was what Forrest campaigned a lot on with the in-person grassroots. But he also had this very large message of how his COVID-19 response would be different than Cooper. But at the state level, I don't know if there was these really strong messages with either party where it was like kind of the single issue or if COVID was even a factor or if it was like, you know, Speaker Moore said at a presser this week, that, you know, you don't run into the governor at Food Lion, but you do run into your your general assembly member. Do you guys think it was more about knowing them in person or just party line voting and not money and advertising? Yeah, I think some was party line voting. You know, I had an interesting interview with uh, Ray Russell, who's the Democratic representative from Watauga and Ash County up in the mountains. And he was one of the Democratic incumbents that won in 2018 by defeating a Republican incumbent, but now has lost uh, this round, um, and his seat's going to be Republican again. Um, and he was telling me he really felt like the Trump voters were just coming out in droves. Like he was working the the polls up in, in Ash County during early voting and people who'd never said they never voted before, but were registering to vote were there because they loved Trump because they were going to vote a straight Republican ticket. And they really weren't interested in, in talking to him about the legislature, if they even really were familiar with that at all. Um, and, and to the extent, I think the Republicans had a central message in the legislative races. It was this, uh, defund the police, uh, ostensible defund the police pledge that they zeroed in on a couple months back and ran ad after ad trying to tie the Democrats in the legislature, particularly in these moderate and somewhat suburban or rural districts, to this idea that Democrats want to cut police funding and you're going to be unsafe as a result of that. And while you know that message was fact-checked and there's obviously a lot more nuance to that and most of these Democrats are not eager to directly defund the police. Um, I think that did stick with a lot of people and, and seemed to be a fairly, to the extent individual legislative Republican campaigns were able to create a statewide message through all the millions of dollars of advertising that was dumped into that. I think that seemed to be the one that, that sort of stuck out to voters, particularly in those swing districts. Yeah, I think Colin has an excellent point um, that I've heard repeated in multiple places, which is that, you know, Donald Trump just has, really has a knack for turning out, uh, you know, what some people like to call low propensity voters, you know, people who might not be super involved in politics normally, but they just really like him. And so they're going to come out and vote when he's on the ballot. But in elections like 2018, when he wasn't on the ballot, you know, they might not have come out and voted. So, you know, Democrats were facing some problems with that. Um, also something that was just burned into my brain from sitting through too many hours of redistricting meetings and court hearings and blah, 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 um, was just basically the math on it that, you know, Democrats had a shot at taking the majority in the legislature, probably if Biden had beat Trump here by five, six, seven percentage points. Um, you know, and, you know, maybe if it was only five points, it would have only taken the house. If it was closer to, you know, a seven or eight point Biden win, then they could have, you know, maybe had some optimism to take the Senate. Um, obviously we still don't know yet who won the presidential race here, but, you know, Trump is up right now and it's looking like, regardless, it's going to be within around 1%. Um, you know, even if Biden does somehow end up squeaking out a win by, you know, a couple dozen or a couple hundred votes, after all the counting is said and done, you know, that is not the the resounding victory that he would have needed to kind of, you know, pull some of those uh, those more rural and suburban districts uh, over the line for Democrats in the legislature with his coattails. 
I think North Carolina, which which makes um, just fun to cover politics, is that um, someone had replied with, I think it was uh, about, you know, Cooper and the legislature just being budget battle, you know, the sequel. They were saying how it's trench warfare and that quote, um, I forgot which football movie, but about, um, you know, just how how close everything is and it's just this like tiny push and pull like both directions and and how that's going to work and and maybe some of you know it's don't be in your own party's echo chamber where you think something is going to be one way and not you know put those boots on the ground in the field and it seems like that in the field work is what uh, like I was saying, you know, it didn't work for Forrest, but it did, um, you know, for the larger Republican Party, and people liked that, and that and that worked. I think that was a struggle for Dems. It was a lot of the campaigning was virtual. Um, I heard some critiques that some of the for the legislative races, you had some folks running Democratic campaigns who weren't from North Carolina, didn't necessarily know the geography, and if you're not doing a lot of in-person campaigning, you're not going to be able to like get out there and learn the district. So some of the sort of attack ads that apparently were uh, were challenging for, for Democrats was trying to run a race on health care when uh, the Republicans had two doctors on the ballot for NC House race, people who had the word doctor in front of their name and in a sort of low information race, um, hard to sort of knock a, a doctor over a health care issue. Uh, I heard there was some uh, gun-related messaging in the race to defeat Representative John Zoka in Fayetteville, a Republican there, um, you know, Guns are a pretty important issue for people who live in or around a military base. So maybe that's not the issue you want to focus on specific to that district. Um, but, you know, maybe the, some of the Democrats that were leading the messaging didn't necessarily recognize that. Um, but I think that's sort of the is a key is the ability to, like, actually get out there and, and tailor things to some of these districts. If what you want is for voters to split their ticket um, and not necessarily just be, you know, following the lead of, of whatever the, the statewide trends are in the, the big presidential and um, high profile races are. One other thing um, that, you know, maybe it's a little insider baseball, but, you know, I guess that's also kind of why uh, people might listen to this podcast <laughs> is just where Democrats were putting their money. Um, you know, if you look at the spending, a lot of it was going into some of the Senate races. And then you see Michael Bloomberg dropping, what was that, like nine million dollars on Yvonne Hawley's ultimately failed campaign for lieutenant governor. So it seemed like the strategy that they saw was, OK, get to that 25-25 tie in the Senate and then have, uh, you know, Yvonne Hawley as the tiebreaker on key votes. Um, but really the conventional wisdom for a long time had been that, you know, while the Senate was gettable, the House was maybe a little bit easier for Democrats. There were more seats total that they would have had to flip in the House, but, you know, the, they weren't as much of a reach in terms of, you know, how many, how many voters they're going to have to win over. Um, so I was a little confused, uh, you know, to to see, you know, so much money going to uh, to the Senate in that strategy of maybe hoping for a 25-25 tie in the Senate. Um, and then, you know, in the House, you see like, you know, Sidney Batch losing in Wake County, um, you know, potentially uh, that Christy Clark, John Bradford race out in Charlotte. Um, I think that one is still maybe too close to call. 
Yeah, that one I think is within the margin for perhaps a recount. So, but it does look like um, John Bradford may be taking his seat back there. So certainly not not as good a night for Democrats in the the more competitive suburbs as, as they'd hope. So you know, it is a question of you know, should they've been playing more defense and then instead they were playing offense? I mean, they they dropped money into defeating William Brisson in Bladen County, who is a uh, conservative Democrat turned Republican who's essentially won in both parties as a member of both parties over you know, the past decade, uh, he ended up, I think, winning by 55% or 57%. So that's may have not been the best use of resources to feel like you could like push into the the reach districts where you really would have had to have a massive Biden wave for a, a Democrat to win in some of these places. Um, but that's ended up being how they did. And, and the result is that, you know, you have fewer Democratic seats in the um, state house, uh, which will mean if there's a, a close veto override and there's a plan to use the veto garage, like with the um, budget override vote a couple years ago or one year ago, feels like a couple years ago, um, then it's going to be easier for Republicans to do that. And you have Democrats maybe adding one seat um, if Harper Peterson's able to hold on in um, New Hanover County, one or two seats, um, but really nowhere massively different from the status quo in in that chamber uh, for all the money and all the, the talk that went into, you know, retaking the majority this year. I mean, we do have checks and balances now between like the party control. So, I mean, there's there's Cooper and the legislature. So part of it is, you know, are they actually going to do anything? Is it going to be stalemate standoff like, you know, all summer long? You know, what are but I I think things will be a little different. I think I think both of them have learned lessons on what what tactics work or not and what hills they're willing to die on, really. And we'll, we'll find out about it. Yeah, even the press conference on uh, Wednesday from the legislative leaders, they seem to be hinting at the, the mini budget process that we saw over the last few years to get around a, a major veto of a large budget bill. Uh, they seem to be indicating that's going to ch- continue. So I think that's that may be what we see instead of uh, an absolute repeat of, of uh, 2018, 2019. And unlike the federal government, North Carolina is not just going to shut down like we have some fail safes there with the budget. right? Um, one thing that I noticed, I wasn't here in <clears throat> 2016 when Cooper won with a Republican legislature the first time around. But it seems like Berger and Moore and Cooper have all signaled sort of the willingness to compromise and work together and the statements that have come out in the last few days. And I don't know how that compares to 2016, but it seems like there's some interest <laughs> um, in working together to get things done. Certainly contrast from the special session to take away Roy Cooper's powers within weeks of when he uh, was declared the winner. Oh, I think there'll be plenty of times where uh, not everyone works together, but, you know, I think they'll actually pull off some things, hopefully for the greater good of North Carolinians, because uh, I would like to think that all of our lawmakers um, actually want to want to benefit everyone in the state. But All right. So uh, any last thoughts before headliner of the week? Um, just that Steve Troxler remains the, the undefeatable uh, here in North Carolina. I think he ended up getting more votes than any other candidate on the ballot um, and is just I feel like every year he he reigns as the the most popular guy on the ballot. So people love their ag commissioner. Got to BNC, as he says. <laughs> yeah, uh, between the state fair and that uh, that tractor logo that he's got on his ads for the last like four cycles, uh, seems to be a winning combination. All right, we'll be back with headliner of the week. All right, so uh, back with headliner of the week and uh, looking at last week's uh, poll results for the Twitter poll. We had as a winner uh, unaffiliated voters with 34%, um, which I think 
proved to be a key part of uh, the election results, uh, followed by the election results at 32%. And then uh, NC's fleeting popularity and the third party effect were uh, distant contenders there. So whoever picked unaffiliated voters last week was our winner. Um, and uh, let's see who we've got as headliners this week. Uh, Don, you want to start? All right. I mentioned this briefly earlier, quoting uh, Speaker Moore, but I'm going to see say, uh, seeing your lawmaker and food lion. That's my headliner of the week. And, um, you know, retail politics, what's more fun to say it as seeing your lawmaker in, in, the, in the food lion and being able to tell them what you think about, um, about what they've done. So that's mine. Lucille? Yeah, mine is going to be, I spent the tail end of last week looking at campaign finance data and Democrats look like they spent around $30 million dollars for the year and Republicans spent around 24 million, which I think is really interesting for legislative races. Um, that's only the legislative races numbers. And so, yeah, it's interesting to see how much money each of these parties raised and Democrats still seem to fall short. And, uh, for my headliner, I think I've got to, uh, Throw it to uh, Mark Robinson, who's going to end up being the the first Black Lieutenant Governor uh, in North Carolina history, and I think only the second ever Black statewide elected official. Um, he uh, he won a you know pretty decent margin in Lieutenant Governor's race against Von Holly, like we mentioned earlier, um, and is you know known for you know big blustery speeches on gun rights in particular. Um, has a pretty uh, uh, controversial, I think you could say, social media presence. Uh, pretty aggressive on uh, on the Facebook. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he tones that down at all now that he is an elected official, or if he keeps that up. I think a lot of people are are eager to see how uh, really a true political outsider, you know, steps into this role. A lot of people like to call themselves political outsiders, um, and he certainly fits that bill um, more so than a lot yeah. of people who call themselves that. Oh yeah. And he may be the Trump of North Carolina if he's, uh, his Facebook continues down the path he's done the last few years. All right. So I guess I'm last. Uh, and I'm going to go with um, alcohol elections. These were the, uh, the things I like to track every year is um, North Carolina has this weird patchwork system of, of alcohol laws. And a lot of uh, local, particularly very rural communities, uh, haven't yet voted to allow different types of alcohol sales, ranging from just being able to pick up a six pack of beer at the store uh, to having restaurants that can serve mixed drinks and cocktails. Um, and so this year, uh, alcohol was on the ballot and I think four or five uh, small towns around the state, ranging from uh, Spring Hope, about 30 minutes east of Raleigh, to Trinity outside of uh, High Point, um, and won by at least 60% in every place it was on the ballot. Uh, so something that had bipartisan support in a very stressful election year appeared to be alcohol. Um, and the fun part of this is just look, seeing just how local the politics are on this issue. So the one example I picked out for my story in uh, Friday's Insider uh, was the Deep River community of Northern Lee County, which is this basically tiny, tiny crossroads. The township itself, the tiny fraction of Lee County, was to vote on alcohol. And the reason for that was that the local convenience store known as the Wink Mart, which if you look it up on Google Maps, has a winking emoji as its logo. They sell, you know, frozen pizzas and stuff apparently is what they're, they're best known for. But they wanted to be able to sell beer and wine and their customers wanted that. So they went to the county commission. The county commission puts it on the ballot for this one fraction of the county. And 60 plus percent of voters in Deep River said they wanted to buy a six pack of beer at the Wink Mart. And so starting soon, go get your Bud Light at the Wink Mart in, in Lee County, um, all as a result of uh, democracy and politics. <laughs> all right. 
Well, be sure to vote in our Twitter poll at Under the Dome uh, for your headliner of the week uh, after you listen to this. Um, I'm Don Vaughn for Lucille Sherman, Will Doran, Colin Campbell, and earlier Brian Murphy. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.